Thank you very much. We don't usually hear the bell choir in the summer, so we're very thankful for your extra work, as well as the choir. So we've had a, I appreciate that. Well, we're almost to the end of this series that we've been doing on the Minor Prophets. Uh, we've traveled almost 400 years in time. It's kind of hard to imagine that uh, in biblical history. And we're now at the prophet Joel. And Joel is probably written uh, a few decades before Alexander the Great. So it's still the Persian period, uh, but that's about to change. It's a time of relative peace in the land, but a horrible natural disaster strikes. Matter of fact, chapter one of Joel, I'm not reading that, I'm reading it enough as it is, but there is a, a catastrophic locust attack. And we're not talking the little locust we get here, but I don't know if you've ever seen the African uh, locusts that get blown up in this area periodically, but they're huge. And they've totally wiped out the crop. And whether or not there actually there's a brush, brush fire that wipes things out, or he just uses that as an analogy, the whole agriculture, uh, the whole harvest has been destroyed. And you get a sense that it's a drought as well, which makes sense, because that's how that often happens in that part of the world. You get those Sierra winds. And so, you know, you and I have a drought, and the price of food goes up, right? In the fourth century, if you have a drought, thousands of people starve, right? Or hundreds of them, probably thousands. So it's, a, it's an incredible tragedy. Uh, and Joel uh, has this vision. After he talks about the tragedy, he has this otherworldly vision, which I'm going to read now. And this is after he's talked about this destruction. He says this, and I'm going to be reading not quite everything that's in your bulletin, but I want to give you a good feel of what the prophet says here. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering, for I, for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the agent, gather the children, even infants that are nursing. Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. In response to his people, the Lord said, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied. And I will no more make you a mockery among the nations. And then verse 21. Do not fear, O soil. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and later rains as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain and the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army that I sent against you. 
You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. My people should never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I, the Lord, am your God and there is no other. And my people should never again be put to shame. Then afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Open up our hearts and our minds that in the midst of this troubled world, we may turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My parents of blessed memory um, were the kind of folks that were always expecting the worst. Like I still, every time I got on an airplane, my mom said, call me when you land. I said, well, just watch CNN and you'll know. Which <laughs> she never appreciated that. Uh, one time I called them and they were huddled in their basement. I said, what's wrong? Well, there's a tornado in our area. A tornado, are they in central Pennsylvania? Well, where is the tornado? Well, the tornado was in the Washington DC area about a hundred miles away. I said, well, okay, I think you're okay. But they said, well, better safe than sorry. All right, so they, yeah, they, were, they camped out in the basement. I got a call, um, this is not that long ago, from my sister who was furious. And she goes, will you call my, our parents? Dad had an incident and they won't listen to me. I go, what do you mean an incident? Well, he collapsed. I go, well, that's, that's kind of serious. So was, but they won't listen to me. So I called my mom, I go, Hi, Mom, how's it going? <laughs> and she was very serious. She goes, oh, Bill, this, this could be it. I go, well, what do you mean? Your dad, does, your dad wants to die at home. I go, well, you know, if you call the ambulance, he may not have to die at all, right? <laughs> and there's this pause on the phone. You think that would be a good idea? I go, I think that'd be a great idea. And uh, he, 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 he just fainted. He lived another four years. So. Uh, uh, that was kind of how they were about things, and it, it explains a little bit how I am so not that way. But what, when the unimaginable does happen, right? While we are sitting here, they're filling sandbags in Palm Spring. And the Baja Peninsula has already been hit, and it's going to be flooding like they haven't seen for a century in that region. And what about the heartbreaking news each day that comes out from Hawaii of that apocalyptic fire? You know, I read a story today, it was just too sad to share, so I'm not even gonna mention it out loud. And even close to home, we had our second 100-year flood in the last 10 years or so, right? You know, we've come to treat the word trauma rather loosely. But we know that when humans experience violence, either at the hands of other humans or live through a natural disaster or a man-made disaster, it changes our brains. We know that scientifically. The prophet Joel lived through a devastating natural disaster that shocked his prophetic imagination. I think that's one of the best ways to read Joel it, it literally is his response to the trauma 
that had happened in the area, and it created this, this vision. The same Ezekiel is very similar this way. And I'm going to use modern psychological speak, which I always think is dangerous when you impose that back on history. But I think you can think that this locust attack triggered deep-seated memories that the community of Israel had. This devastation of the crops reminded them of this devastation that they had experienced from the enemies. The tragedy that their grandparents and great-grandparents had survived, and many of them didn't survive. What do we do in the face of disaster, whether it be on a macro level, like what happened in Hawaii, happened in Joel's time, or the disasters and tragedies that we experience in our day-to-day -day lives? Now, I can hear the modernists saying, a loving God does not send locusts, right? That's, a loving God does not send locusts to destroy the crops, which I tend to agree with. But that doesn't change the facts on the ground or the way I'm feeling. I hear the skeptics saying, see, there is no God, which I do not agree with, but again, that does not change the facts on the ground. I hear the Job's wife option. Remember what Job's wife said to Job after everything happened? Curse God and die. And I think that's a very similar response that the widespread done movement. Have you heard about the people who are done with faith or done with organized religion? I think that's kind of a similar response that a lot of folks are having. They may not officially curse God, but they certainly curse religion. And some of them start a podcast. But Joel hears God. And he hears God inviting the people to return or turn. That's a really important word in, in, in Hebrew scriptures. And it's a very important turn in this whole term that shows up in this period of time. Because it's about a physical return to Israel, but it's also about a return to the God who loves them. Joel hears God saying, even now, return to me with your heart. Return to your Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Thomas Alik, who I, you hear me talk about a lot, a man who himself went through some horrific suffering, says this in his latest book. There are apparently many who have lost their faith in God solely because of the existence of evil and suffering in the world. I must admit that I've never had that temptation. My understanding and experience of suffering of it have tended to be quite the opposite. Almost nothing has aroused in me such a thirst for meaning as the absurdities of the world and such a thirst for God as the open wounds of life's sorrows. I've said this before, 
if evil is a problem, if evil is a philosophical problem, then to be fair, good is a philosophical problem as well. And I think Joel and what Halik articulates here is that when we are confronted with things that are bigger than us, and there's nothing like a disaster or a tragedy that reminds us that we're not in control, then genuine faith requires a kind of act of realism, right? If you think you're in control, or if you're the cockeyed optimist, if you think things are always going to get better, then you have to live in a kind of denial. But when things go wrong, and they can be on a big level or a small level, we're reminded, you know, I'm not in control. The stupid bus breaking down. <laughs> right? And when we realize that we're not in control, there is always an opportunity to grow trust and faith. That there's something in the world bigger than me. I've told this story before, but I'm, I'm walking through the, the building. It was a large facility there in Philadelphia. And it's Jan sometime in January during the week, and I heard somebody making noise in one of the kids' Sunday school rooms. There shouldn't have been anybody in there. And I walk over and I hear this, I hear this weeping, this quiet weeping. And this young widow is taking down the Christmas decorations from her Sunday school class. She taught the four-year-olds. And her husband had died uh, while jogging of a heart attack uh, the first week of December, young man. And I felt like I was intruding. And I said, are you okay? And she says, no. I said, would you like me to leave? She goes, no. So I sat there in, in a chair while she was crying and, and putting the decorations away. And she turned to me and she said, someday we will be happy again, but not today, but someday. And I think that's the dance of faith, right? That's kind of the dance that we get here in Joel. It is a horrific day that has all kinds of disastrous implications for the people. But Joel's vision is that this disaster is not the final word for his people. And so you have this vision that we read about of, of God restoring and God promising a better tomorrow. And it begins with the agricultural. I mean, one of the things I think it's so wrong about the way the Christian faith has evolved over the last centuries is the way we are disconnected from the land. And I'm going to talk about that more in October, uh, around the week. We're going to kind of recognize St. Francis this week. We're going to do, this year, do some fun things. But so much of this passage is God promising the land is going to be okay and promising the animals it's going to be okay. There's going to be a better day, animals. The restoration of the Garden of Eden is always lurking in the biblical story. And, and as human beings, we need to care and tend the garden that God has given us. 
And our failure to do this is catastrophic. But God says the, the land will be healed. And then he talks about a political or societal healing, right? You will no longer be put to shame. Yeah. Um, none of us can imagine the courage and character that Nate Boone had in 1948. Truman didn't really want to integrate the army, but that's a whole inside political story. But a young Hubert Humphrey kind of pushed that. Imagine a young man being somewhere where he wasn't wanted just because of the color of his skin. But the faith and courage he embodied to help make a better society, to make a better way for his children and our children. Tell you what, we want to honor Nate Boone, then we keep that fight going. We don't quit. Until every child in this country, regardless of their color, regardless of where they come from, regardless of who they are, is treated with the dignity that being created in the image of God requires. But the deeper mystery is a spiritual one, too. Joel has a vision when there'll be a day when God will make everybody a prophet. Everybody will have vision because God himself will dwell inside them. By the way, that's what we believe that Pentecost means. All of us have the spirit of God within us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is a name that maybe many people don't remember anymore, but he was a Nobel Prize winner. Um, and really one of the great dissidents against the former Soviet Republic. His life was full of tragedy and struggle. He was born, his father died right after he was born. His mother was treated poorly during the communist regime initially because she was from a bourgeois class. But he excelled. He was a true believer in Lenin and the communist way. He was gifted mathematician and science, and he accelerated. He enlisted in the army when World War II broke out. He was injured. He was captured by the Germans. He was decorated. He was a captain. And he was disillusioned by the way the Soviet hierarchy just wasted so many lives. He unfortunately wrote that in a letter. And not long after he was decorated as a war hero, he found himself a political prisoner in the gulag. And on top of that, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. It's hard to believe, a worse situation. He's in prison, sick, recovering from a surgery. And the young doctor stands by his bedside. We know the name of the doctor. And this young doctor just converted to Christianity. And all night is sharing with him the meaning of this new faith. The young doctor leaves and that night is murdered. Okay. And Solzhenitsyn becomes a Christian. Now, 
why in the world that led him to be a Christian? I would kind of think, all right, the guy who was a Christian just talking to me got himself killed in his sleep. I might think a different religious option. Right? And Solzhenitsyn miraculously recovered uh, from his terminal diagnosis and went on to be an important voice in the 20th century of both faith and, and what true responsibility means. I don't understand why Solzhenitsyn came to faith as opposed to cursing God. I don't understand why Joel has a vision of a better day in the midst of disaster. But I do believe that's how God works in our world, the mystery of God working. And the call of Joel, or the call of so many who've come before us, is that it's not because, in spite of the evil and obstacles in this world we have faith, but it's precisely as a response to the evil and hate and injustice. It's precisely a word of hope we can speak in a cancer ward at a graveside to a kid who thinks no one else cares about them. This isn't about maintaining an institution. This isn't about a building. This isn't about an organized religion. This is about the hope that can change the world one person at a time. It's the only reason we should be here in the midst of all that's going on in our world. To speak a word of faith and hope. Or as Joel says in chapter three, the Lord roars from Zion and the heavens and earth quake but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. God is our refuge and strength in this troubled world. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's continue our worship by giving to God our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings. 